Two things have prompted the sermon I want to talk about today in particular. And the sermon today is about marriage. I'll just be upfront. It's about the blessings of marriage. Uh, sort of spoiler alert, that's the topic. I'd like to talk about the blessings of marriage. And, and two things have moved me to talk about it. And one is something that I know I do in the ministry from time to time. So it's not, I don't think it's just me. That's why I'm saying it. I think sometimes that all of us can, but I know that I can. <clears throat> sometimes we talk about, we want to discuss the blessings of marriage as God has designed it and and uh, conducting yourself properly in this world when it comes to marriage, that we end up not really talking about the blessings so much, but how uh, marriage can make for the absence of curses, in a sense. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll talk, and I even mention this, I think, in, in premarital counseling sometimes, that we'll say, you know, all those people out there fornicating and ignoring God's commands concerning sex outside of marriage, you know, STDs are rampant, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, which actually they are. If you look at statistics, it's pretty terrible. I will say, but but marriage is full of blessings, like no STDs, you know, and it will just kind of sort of take the curse and the absence of the curse. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a blessing. You know, it's a it's a blessing not to have a curse in a sense. But at the same time, there are so many beautiful blessings that that we 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 do try, and I, I want to try and do better, to remember to to paint the positive pictures. God didn't just talk about going to the promised land by saying, you know, he's just been pretty bad, right? It's been awful. Well, so get. You know, he didn't just say, so get. He said, no, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave the Israelites reasons to want to be there. Now, they messed up as soon as they got there, you know, and didn't go in. But that said, still... It's important to recognize the blessings, even when we talk with our children about obedience. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, you don't want to get caught up in these things because of all the terrible things. We want to make sure we illustrate to them the blessings of doing things properly. So that was one thing that prompted the the message I want to give today. The second one is the fact that you may have noticed the world is falling apart. If you haven't noticed, I you are under a big rock. We had a sermon about a year or so ago, and um, it escapes me. I, I think it might have been Dr. O'Neill. I can't recall. But, but that said, all of us have made this same joke. I've said it more than once. Because you see the world falling apart. Uh, you see how they don't even understand what boy and girl is anymore. And you see bits of prophecy. It's almost like the BBC these days would read a, one of our booklets and decide to put that in, the, uh, in, the, in their news. You know, you had Germany rearming all of a sudden. So many things happening. And it's easy to think, well, maybe it's quick. Maybe everything's falling apart fast and, and, and the end is coming. And, you know, we think of younger people who might wonder, well, am I going to have an opportunity to, to be married one day? You know, what, what do I plan for a future? Do I plan on going to college for four years or two? Or should I just plan on a semester because Christ is returning in the spring semester or next year, which not, shouldn't be that fast based on what we see. But that said, I want to make sure I, I, that I communicate that, oh, cause the joke, I forgot the joke. The joke is that, uh, well, hey, you know, don't worry, there might be marriages in the place of safety. And so, uh, you can, uh, start your marriage on the rocks. It's kind of the joke if we, you know, start with a marriage on the rocks. Yeah, no, it's not a good joke. Uh, but that said, we'll do it all. It's a minister joke, you know, we say it all the time. But, uh, that's, it's a joke and we're, we're trying to be, you know, humorous and to make a little light of something. But at the same time, I don't think this is a time to, to, to shirk back 
for, if you're young and you'd like to get married one day, I think rather it's, it's the time to, to push forward, to plan on, so, well, no, all the more I, I do want to get married. I, I do want to, uh, have children and prepare them for this world and actually build a family that can withstand the times to come because I, apparently I've been born for such a time as this, right? And so to not use it as an excuse to shirk back, but all the more as a reason to go forward with passion and seriousness about what we are to be doing. So I want to talk about marriage in that sense, to make sure we understand it is something beautiful. It's a gift that God has created for us. You know, in Genesis, when you read about the creation, which we understand was a recreation, It's only after man and woman have both been created and joined there by God that the words are used that the creation was very good. It had been good up till then. Good, good, good. And then God made only man. And that's the first time you get a not good. Uh, It's not good that man should be alone. And then once they're both created, they're on the sixth day. Uh, God, he's about to rest for the Sabbath, and he says, ah, this is very good. Marriage is a gift. And so I want today to be as positive as I can be, to focus on the blessings of marriage and to remind us that it truly is a good in the world, not simply a haven away from that which is bad. And so the title of the sermon today is The Blessings of Marriage. The Blessings of Marriage. And I know that all of us here in this audience, and if there's anyone who watches this DVD at a later time, and certainly here in Charlotte, we're a large group, that we have people in various states of life. I, I knew a woman who had been married. She, she married uh, later in life, but uh, definitely was very close with her husband. Uh, but we were talking once, this was years ago, and talking about, well, uh, you know, what if, what if he were to die? And she said, well, if she dies, he said, if he dies, I'm not planning on marrying again. I mean, it's been great. But I don't got time to break in another one. You know, that's it. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm done. You know, I've, 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 I've done it. And we have people in various states of life. You know, some that that may not marry in this life. Uh, for instance, uh, we're all in various places, and we have uh, uh, different questions about about the future and what that might hold. And I do want to say this at the very beginning, before we get into these blessings, to make sure we understand that God loves all of His children. And nothing holds him back from developing within each of us whatever it is that he needs to develop. And we don't have to have concern about the future in that regard. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We have a promise here that applies to all of us. Whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we have been married. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, trying to encourage those in Philippi, says in Philippians 4 and verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. In all stages of life, nothing really holds God back from developing whatever he needs to develop within us for the sake of the eternity he has planned for us. And there will be nothing in this life that on the other side, when we are in the kingdom, that we will look back 
and think, wow, you know, this eternity would be so much better if only I had had the opportunity that God never gave me to do such and such in this life. And so I want to encourage you to think about that before I go on to the blessings of marriage. There's no, I'll say this, you know, God, the father is not up in heaven, wringing his hands, thinking, it's just so rough being a God being, and I've never had the chance to be on earth and be physically married to anybody. It's just, it's just not worth it. I just, I just can't go on. He's not that everything here, everything here that is good and worthwhile is only a shadow that really points to the reality that we anticipate. And when that reality is here, we will have no more need for these things. So I want to make sure as I go through these, these blessings of marriage for those who, who may have never had the opportunity uh, to be married. I didn't want you to think that, well, yeah, I guess that, that somehow I'm going to be a, a second class God being. Uh, on the other side, and that's absolutely not the case. God is not so limited that he is somehow restricted from developing within us all he needs to do. Uh, so please do keep that in mind as we go through this this list. But that said, I do want to make sure we understand that that marriage is a blessing. It is something that is designed for man's good. And I want to I'm not going to give you the number because I'm not sure I'll get through all of them, but we're going to go through several uh, blessings related to marriage. So let me talk about the first blessing. And this is not an exhaustive list. And you may come up with a completely different list, perhaps, though the principles would have to be the same because I do believe the, the principles we'll discuss are biblical. One of the first blessings that I think of when it comes to marriage is the fact that we get to participate with God in a creation or in the creation of something. We get to participate with God in the creation of something. And it's not children. Well, they'll come later if I get there. It's not actually children I have in mind. I'm actually thinking of the creation of a brand new household on the earth, a brand new family. One of the things that I appreciated about our uh, DVD, Raising Good Kids in a Bad World, uh, by Mr. Jonathan McNair, was how he highlighted that you know, sometimes you'll hear families say they, you know, a couple has gotten married and then eventually they have children and they'll say, oh, now we're a family. And he highlighted on that, that that's not, that's, that's a mistake. You know, when you've married, you've created that new family. Having children expands your family. It grows your family. But no, when you married, you became a new family, a new household on the earth. And there is a... I don't exactly know how to put it other than it does feel like a, a blessing, a kind of scary blessing to a certain extent to, to get to partake of that act and participate with God in creating a new family. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 2, we see where the creating of that family is discussed. Genesis chapter 2. And this is the same passage that Jesus Christ quoted when he was challenged about marriage and about divorce and how all that works. And in Genesis chapter 2, after God brings Eve to man and man is 
happy uh, once Eve shows up. And so they are joined, Jesus Christ said, by God as a family, as a marriage. It says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's an interesting passage, and it's easy to miss some of the some of the subtleties. I don't always like to dive uh, into the Greek or into the Hebrew because I feel like it, it can be a uh, a real challenge. I, I up front, I'm I'm not a, a scholar of Hebrew or Greek. I'm, if this were a calculus equation, I would love to talk about it. That would be fantastic. But at the same time, the translators are they are experts that's why they're translating and there is a word in this that it's it's really difficult when you understand how languages work the it's not always a one-to-one translation sometimes one word in one language can mean multiple words can be interpreted in multiple ways that are often related but not exactly the same but each one of those sometimes might have other words that relate to them it's sort of a many-to-many mapping which at least mathematically is very complicated and sometimes there's just not one. One just doesn't quite do the trick. And, and I do feel in this is one word. It's in the word there, at least in the New King James, translated leave. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Now leaving is an easy word, right? If I were to just walk outside, I've left, right? But this word actually carries a larger burden than that. Uh, the Hebrew word is pronounced, at least as the way my computer tells me, uh, asav. Asav. You can spell it A-S-A-V. Asav. It says, therefore a man shall asav his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And I like to look to see where the word is used elsewhere to get a sense of what it means. And it is far richer than leave. For instance, we see it in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And my point here is that, again, when a marriage happens then we have the creation of a brand new family unit. Uh, and it's a blessing to get to participate on that because it's something God does on the earth. In Joshua chapter 1, we see this same word used in verse 5. This is where God is trying to encourage Joshua that he will be with him like he was with Moses. So he has no cause to fear. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, God says to Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And you might think, okay, well, yeah, it it says leave there, just like it says in Genesis chapter two. But that's not the Hebrew word. It's not translated leave in this verse. It's the second verb there forsake i will not leave you nor forsake you it's that's where the asav is in this verse i will not forsake you which is a much stronger word it's not just a matter of physically leaving if you think about it if you're parents and you send your son to the store he just left you that's not the same kind of leaving he does when he gets married at the same time forsaking sounds rather harsh right uh, does the commandment no longer apply that we're to honor our father and mother, you know, once we get married? What, what does that actually mean? Well, it's used in a lot of places. And when you look at the verses where, where the word is used, it really adds to the picture. Let's look at just one more. It's one verse, but it shows up three times because of the peculiarities of Hebrew. If you turn to 
Exodus 23. And this is one of those great verses that if you need it in your life, it kind of beats you up. It's about how to treat your enemies. And it's a weird uh, faith we have where some of our favorite verses are the ones that beat us up a little bit and make us make us realize we need to be better people. And in this one, he's saying, he's saying you're going to come upon your enemy, someone who hates you. And you're going to be tempted uh, to leave him in his distressing circumstance. And God's going to say, you don't get to do that. You actually have to help him out. If I read it in the New King James, uh, Exodus 23 and verse 5 says here in verse 5, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now, it might be hard to imagine that the word asav is in this three times. This word that was translated forsake in another verse. And it's translated leave in Genesis 2.24, but it is. And... It's a good example, this verse is, of how difficult it is to just, you can't really just go word for word. I was corresponding with a reader of the magazine once. They wanted the most accurate Bible they could get. So they said, oh, I'm going to get one of those interlinears. I think I'll use interlinear. And it's like, that's just, that's a great study tool, but it's not going to read normally because that's not actually how translation works. In this case, it's better to describe how the verb is used than to try to, to match it to a particular word. Because it actually matches the word helping here. If you're trying to find a word, one of them is the first helping. And the other two are the same helping. The next help, rather. Because of the Hebrew proclivity, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it twice. It's sort of like saying king of kings or verily, verily or something. So it actually shows up three times, but it's referring to the donkey and helping the donkey, which is what does that have to do with leaving your father and mother, right? That, what does that have to do with not being forsaken, not forsaking Joshua? Because what it essentially means is to undo the burden on the donkey. That is, you see your enemy's donkey struggling under this burden because it's got this burden tied to it and the donkey is unable to move and it's sort of crushed and your enemy is struggling and you would say, well, hey, couldn't happen to a better guy and his donkey and you just want to walk on by. He's saying, no, you shall not. You would refrain from releasing that burden. God says, no, you will go help your enemy and you will release that burden from the donkey. It, it's connected there. The word asav is to untying the burden. In a sense, removing the obligation on the donkey. Allowing the donkey, if you will, to forsake the burden uh, that, it's, uh, that it's secured to right now. Which goes back, when you think of Joshua, that's sort of what God is saying. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's telling Joshua, I- I'm not going to leave you. I am bound to you and I will not undo this tie of obligation. I will keep that obligation strong. Uh, you can count on me to be there. And then we go back to Genesis chapter 2 where it says a man shall leave his father and mother. It's in that where the, the bonds of obligation in the sense of obedience, etc. as a father, as a head of household are done. And the man becomes a new head of household. 
And that's important to understand, especially as we're getting older and we might have children who are getting married. It's easy sometimes to think, well, I'm always going to be your dad and you always got to do what I say. And that's just not the case. You know, when a husband and wife marry, they become a new household. If they're smart, they'll still listen to us because theoretically we're smarter. Theoretically, right? But if we're smart, we'll recognize we're not always right. And if we're smart, we won't intervene with an authority that we no longer have with them. And I could, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but all of us, or many of us at least, have experienced marriages or know of marriages or have had them in our family where mom and dad or mother-in-law and father-in-law uh, take liberties they shouldn't in a marriage or where husband and wife perhaps aren't kind of guarding that new household in a way, uh, sometimes from their parents to a certain extent. You know, sometimes a man has to stand up and say, look, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, you know, she was your daughter, uh, but now she's my wife. And what you say is a burden on her and uh, you'll need to stop. Because he is a new head of household. And that's something wonderful on the earth. It's something miraculous. The family is the fundamental unit of civilization. And when a man marries a woman, it's like a new brick. It's like God has created something new on the earth, a new family that was not there before. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful to take part in that in some way. It's, uh, it's intimidating. The one thing about your mom and dad not being your boss anymore or your mother-in-law and father not being your boss, it does mean you're the boss, right? And that means you can't blame mom and dad anymore and you can't blame mother-in-law and father-in-law anymore. And that's kind of a blessing too. It's sort of a kick in the pants sort of blessing, but uh, but it is. It really is all on you. But that's the first one I want to mention. The first blessing of marriage is the ability to participate with God in this creation of a new thing on the earth. The second one that I want to mention, the second blessing of marriage is sex and romance. Now, you probably wondered if I was going to mention that, right? Uh, you think, is he going to get away with saying that? It's, I agree, it's awkward. We're going to go very quickly. Uh, but you got to be honest, right? Because if you don't mention it, it's sort of the elephant in the room, right? Because uh, that generally should be, right, where sexual relations become uh, blessed of God. That That's the realm in which that takes place. And that... That chemistry, if you will, between man and woman is designed by God. And that is the environment in which it is to be expressed. Uh, it's a good reminder. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. And as you're turning there, I'll, I'll just comment. You know, sometimes, and again, I'll speak for myself when I'm, when I'm doing premarital counseling. I, I, I try to make sure that I'm, I'm not... You're coming across in such a way that marriage is just simply painted as a burden and as something mechanical. Because I, I like to do the prepare and enrich tool. It's all biblical counseling, but the prepare and enrich tool is very nice in terms of having some sort of third-party uh, element that sort of helps you understand some things they might be able to focus on or even help them recognize some strengths in their relationship. I actually enjoy really using it a lot. But at the same time, 
we've got to be careful because we talk about you need to make sure this is the right person and you need to make sure. And, and we, we pour so much in this almost analysis, like it's a mathematical analysis. Like, you know what? You don't even need to meet the person you're going to marry. You just need like a Scantron sheet with a number two pencil and the right questions. You fill out the bubbles. We pop them in the sheen. It comes out. Ding, ding. Let's get these people married. And you can finally meet and say, well, hello, my name is uh, Wally Smith. Nice to meet you. It appears we're going to be married today. Let's uh, go to the robot and beep, bop, boop. You're married. Like it's some sort of mechanical process. Well, the fact is there's a lot of chemicals involved, right? God designed it that way. It's not wrong. Most people don't get married to someone because they read their application and it looked pretty good, right? Uh, don't get me wrong. There should be. That's part of what you do in counseling is help to lift up the rose-colored glasses every once in a while so they do get a good look, right, at what it is they're marrying But rose-colored glasses are also there for a reason. God tints those glasses a bit. And we see that discussed in Proverbs chapter 30. And it uses the Hebrew way of, of listing things for the sake of emphasizing the last thing. It's just, I, I love the structure and the way it's done. In Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 18. He writes here, Proverbs 30 and verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I do not understand the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, the Hebrew word here for virgin means essentially a young, uh, usually unmarried woman. And so it's not talking necessarily about after already being married, it's talking about that kind of chemistry that God designed between the sexes. The world is trying to tell you something different. Honestly, they don't even know what they're saying, but a part of their mixed up message is that there is no difference, right? And they've only done that so they can just make up 18,000 different differences. But there is a difference between the sexes and the French have it right. Uh, viva la difference, right? It's a good thing for there to be a difference. And so sex and romance has its place and God designed it, but it must be in its place. And the world tries to cram it into everything. I remember one of the Super Bowl commercials years ago. Uh, they had this uh, super supposedly sexy actress, quote unquote, I hate that adjective, to sell Doritos of all things. A product guaranteed to make you decidedly less physically attractive if you indulge in them too much. And they were using her to sell Doritos of all things. The world crams it in everything. And one of the things I I, I try to emphasize, for instance, in premarital counseling is one of the best things you can do is ask God to the fullest extent he is willing and you will allow him to scrub your brain clean of everything the world has tried to teach you directly and indirectly about sex and romance. Because it's virtually 100% incorrect. If anything, the world is doing its best to use that to draw us further away from what the purpose of sex is in a marriage. It's sort of like quantum mechanics, for those of you who uh, believe it or not. Uh, in quantum mechanics, the mere fact of observing an experiment changes the experiment. It's one of the mysteries of quantum mechanics. Uh, it, the experiment happens in a way it would not happen because you observed it. And my wife's grandfather, he didn't realize he was a quantum mechanics physicist, but uh, my wife's grandfather recognized the same phenomenon when it comes to the media and sex. He said, sex is not a spectator sport. Uh, 
It's not the way it was designed. It's not a spectator sport. And the mere act of taking it in in that sense through other media, through stories and books and the rest, it distorts, it changes the end result. That's not, that's not what it was meant for. And yet marriage was meant for that. That 100% committed for life till death do we part in it for the next seven plus decades or so environment that allows for intimacy and vulnerability. That's the environment for which it was created. And it comes with a responsibility, which is to respect that. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. In Hebrews 13 and verse 4. The apostle Paul writes. That marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That is, the marriage provides the boundaries where that act, uh, where that relationship, that physical relationship, sees its greatest fruition. And it is wonderful uh, to have a God in heaven who sent his son to die and to shed his blood so we could be forgiven and washed and transformed. Because this world does its best to beat the tar out of us uh, by the time we get there and even afterwards. But that said, we aim for this. And we are blessed the closest we get to that uh, from birth till then. As for more details, I'm sorry, I got nothing I'm willing to share. There's no slides. There's no books in the back. There's no audio tapes. I'm just going to recommend Song of Solomon. If you want, read Song of Solomon for the details. And men, you will benefit from learning how to compliment your wife by describing her teeth as sheep. Believe me, the ladies really go for that. All right, the third blessing of marriage I wanted to talk about uh, here in the sermon. Again, you might organize them differently. Is commitment. Real commitment. And we have different commitments in our lives, right? Our mother and father are committed to us in a way no other human being is. Your older brother might be committed to giving you noogies in a way no other human being is, right? There's different commitments we have in our lives. And marriage provides a certain kind of unique commitment uh, that we just don't experience in anything else. You know, outside of rare exceptions, marriage is for life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about marriage. Paul was dealing with difficult circumstances. They were under a lot of stress. There were a lot of questions and he processes a lot. And some of what he says, he takes it as a given, but it's important. We can still use it as reminders. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he highlights a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. You understand, we marry in the faith. When you understand these things about marriage, you understand all the more why we must, why we seek that, that that is God's ideal for a reason, uh, for the sake of intimacy and the rest. You just can't have that uh, marrying outside of the faith. It's not the same. But it is for life. 
That's what it's meant to be. And yes, there are things I, I did want to focus on the positive. There are a very narrow range of biblical reasons for marriages to, um, to come apart. But God put that marriage together. As we mentioned earlier, let not man tear it asunder. It is meant to be for life. When you get married, don't say it. We want to, we want to preserve the sanctity of the marriage ceremony. It's important. But, you know, when you're, if a minister's counsel with a couple, you can kind of let them know, you know, only one of you is getting out of this alive. You know, that's kind of the way it is. That's the way it's meant to be. If it's going to serve its purposes, there's an old movie trope. We don't use this in our wedding ceremony, but you see it in, in movies and cartoons where someone's getting married and the preacher will say, you know, in richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. And, you know, I didn't appreciate that kind of sentiment as much when I got married. Not quite 30 years ago. It'll be 30 years this July. I didn't appreciate that quite as much. I was 22. I was was young and vibrant and healthy. I was literally half the man I am today in, in certain ways. Uh, and now, I, I, like I said, I turned 52 in a week or so. March, March 23rd, I'll turn 52. And you know, the warranty is running out on a lot of things, uh, on the body God gave me. It's, uh, you know, it's, ask God for a refund. He's like, no, that's the only one you got. I gave you that one. You're going to have to make that one work. And you start to realize also, you look in the mirror and you're not quite the dashingly handsome man you were when you, uh, convinced that poor soul to marry you, you know, several years ago. And yet they're still there. They, they don't leave because it was a commitment. Now, there's a, a really neat quote from Jordan Peterson. One of the things I like to hear him talk about is marriage because he's a secular psychologist. And yet he was saying to his college students in these old lectures things that we know to be true, but most people in the world were rejecting. And he was just seeing it based on the truth of it in real life. And he was talking about how, what was the quote? I did write it down. He said, There are some games you don't get to play unless you are all in. And marriage is one of those. You know, people who cohabitate, cohabit, co-live together. uh, Those who decide to live together before marriage. They say, well, we're just trying it out, right? We're just trying it out. We want to make sure this is going to work. The science is in that does nothing but ruin marriages. That's not how marriage works. What you do when you do that is you practice divorce. Because what is the message when you're just living with someone? It's essentially, look, hey, you make me really happy. I, 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 I won't say I love you. That's what they would say, but that's not what that means. I love you doesn't just mean you make me super happy. It's far more than that. But still, man, you, you make me really happy. I enjoy being with you. You know, I think maybe we could even live together forever. And, and it seems that, that, that I make you happy, you know, so let's, you know, put our toothbrushes in the same place. You know, how romantic. You notice a trend in media where the big climax of the, of the story used to be where, where there's a proposal. And then eventually, and I couldn't tell you the year, but you definitely started to see it. Rather, the big climax in the relationship was handing someone a key so they could cohabit in the same space. Oh, how romantic. You don't want to commit to me, but you'd like to hang me around more, more frequently, right? And again, it was actually, uh, Dr. Peterson's lecture where I thought this was highlighted. He said, that, that's, that's a terrible, it's not a commitment. 
And it, it doesn't force you to be honest with each other. Because if you know that other person, if they knew this one thing, or they knew you made this mistake, or they knew that problem, uh, you, they wouldn't be happy. And that's the only reason they're staying around is because they're still happy. He says, living together without the sacred commitment that we're in this for life, is like fertilizing the soil for lies and deception because you're incentivized not to be honest. You're incentivized not to be forthcoming. But to have that commitment not only creates the possibility of actually being open with someone, it is remarkably reassuring. There's a peace of mind that I don't, uh, that, that's, that's hard to communicate. And I know as I've seen older couples, some of you who have set such amazing examples for the rest of us, uh, as, as your spouse, uh, health has failed, uh, or poverty has come upon you, or circumstances that would have driven lesser committed couples uh, to leave or to give up. And to see you be there, not only is it inspiring to the rest of us to want to match your example, but it's such a comfort to recognize that someone has actually committed to you that if you're that person, they're still going to be there. You know, they've done studies in terms of the people you spend most of your time with. They looked at various categories of people, uh, co-workers, uh, maybe neighbors, I suppose, uh, friends, uh, children and spouses, and they've, they charted them in terms of the average amount of hours in a day. And while the beginning, when you're young, it kind of varies for almost all of those relationships, including children, and if you have grown children, you know it's a reality, the amount of time decreases over time, where they're just not there like they used to be. And even for your children, it has to be that way. They can't go off and become a new family and spend as much time with you as they did when you were changing their diaper and feeding them, you know, milk and taking them to nap nap time. But there was one relationship where it increased. And you get to a certain age, and it's kind of decreasing the work years, but then it starts to increase as you get older. And that was the spouse. That's the person who will be with you when everyone else is gone. And to have someone like that recognize they've been willing to literally tell God, I'm going to stick around, is a tremendous blessing. And something that's hard to appreciate when you're young, but it truly, truly, you will appreciate it the older you get. All right, fourth blessing of marriage. I wanted, to, And it is different. I know this seems similar, some of these, but at least... When I was thinking about them, there were qualities of them that made them made them different. Again, you want to make your own list? Plan your own sermon. And you can give it. But to me, this one actually different. It stands out for other reasons. And that is companionship. Companionship. If you turn to Malachi chapter 2, and I hope as you think about it, you, you might agree that, well, yeah, commitment is a matter of being there, but who is there, right? I mean, theoretically, I don't know if they were real, you know, uh, 
Batman might had have Alfred for his whole life, right? Uh, you know, forever. I guess Alfred is older. I can't remember. It's not a big fan of Batman. But that said, it's not his spouse, right? That's not the same thing. It's not a companion in the same way. A uh, companion is different. It's not not the, not just someone who's there. There's a certain kind of way they are there. Malachi chapter two, and here God is contending with Judah concerning various things going wrong in their society and their culture, and they just kind of give these answers, whether they're half sarcastic, half not. I don't really know, but they're like they're oblivious. When God says, "Boy, you know, I'm so upset about this," and they're like, "What's wrong?" You know, what are you talking about? It's like an impudent child. Uh, like they don't, they're either completely ignorant because they're that far gone or they just are protesting that God decides it's worth punishing. And so he's, he's called them concerning, uh, what they're doing with marriage. In Malachi chapter two, and I'll go ahead and start reading in verse 13. God says, this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the eternal with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? For what reason, God? What, how do you justify being so upset about this? And he says, because the eternal has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you've dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion. And your wife by covenant. You know, even in your carnality, if there's anyone in the world you should not treat treacherously, it is this person who is your closest companion. You know, it's it's interesting that it says uh, the wife of your youth. And I recognize people get married at a lot of different ages. Um, I remember being part of a a premarital counseling for a fellow who was in his 80s. was going to get married. That was... He's getting a new wife of his youth, maybe his second youth. I'm not sure how he thought about it, you know, but still, and that's fantastic. It's wonderful. But it is interesting studies they've done recently. We've been hearing for a long time, and marriage has definitely been trending older. The average age right now, and these are off the top of my head, but I did look at the statistics recently. But around 2021 or so, the average age for a man to get married in the United States is 30. And for a woman, 28. But if you go back to, say, 1950, the average age for a man to get married was 23. Actually, I think 22.8. You got to round up to 23. Uh, and the average age for a, a woman at the time was 21. Was much younger. And scientists would say, well, you know, the 30, you know, around, that's about the sweet spot for minimizing the probability of divorce. Right. They do all these statistical studies in the United States and they find the lowest probability of divorce is right there around age 30. And yet we think of our grandparents, right, our grandfather and our grandmother, uh, and they have way better let's stay married forever rates than at what we see today. I literally spoke to someone in a, a neighboring congregation had been married to her husband for more than 70 years. 70 years and you don't do that you know marrying at 30 so in that case definitely they didn't she was much much younger well the uh there's a a group i follow brad wilcox he's a uh, professor and lecturer and uh he he works with and runs the uh well if he runs it but the institute for family studies ifs the institute for family studies and they have done amazing work and they've actually looked at that data 
and they broke out a, a, a particular group. Because that's all over the country. That's people of different lifestyles, different approaches. They separated based on one factor. Because it was based on the age of the woman in that particular case. Which of these women in this study have never lived with someone before getting married and never lived with the man they married even? That is, they waited until they were married to actually live in the same house. Once they did that, the age benefit disappeared. And even those who married between 20 and 25 had exactly the same level of success in terms of avoiding divorce uh, than those did who waited until 30. And that's something we always have to keep in mind when the world is giving us statistics. Those statistics are based on not just people like you and me, but also, uh, you know, people that run meth labs. Uh, you know, people that might happen to be prostitutes that filled out a census form that day. You know, and the rest, it's based on all of society, not people that have devoted themselves to doing things in a particular way. A uh, researcher, I'm a real fan of, uh, Mark Regnerus. Uh, he got in big, when I became a fan, he got in big trouble for a study he did trying to understand the impact of homosexuality on children. And it was one of the largest studies of its kind. And one of the first to publicly say it's not good. Uh, that consistently, whenever there was, well, consistently, the statistics showed in general that when homosexuality was involved in, uh, with one parent in one form or another, the outcomes for children were just lower across the board in various things. And Mark Regnerus wrote an article back in 2009 for Christianity Today uh, titled The Case for Early Marriage. And he was commenting on this. This is before IFS had done its work breaking out data. But he was commenting that what seems to make a difference for younger marriages to succeed, one is the understanding that it's a commitment, not like the world has. This is a commitment for life. And that has to be a part of that understanding. Also, you have to have a supportive community and supportive family. Uh, but when you do, it makes a big difference. And one of the things, it's not Mark Regner's, it was actually uh, Brad Wilcox and those with IFS. They speculated on some of the differences. This is recent. This was actually around February and uh, Newsweek had an article about it, the Wall Street Journal. I wish I'd thought to bring a, a citation. I work in editorial. Uh, you know, I know it's helpful, but I, I didn't think to. But if you, if you look for uh, Brad Wilcox and you look for some of his work, you'll find it. And they, they could speculate because correlation isn't necessarily causation. They're trying to figure out, though, what is making the difference. Clearly, because they were finding even amongst the younger couples a higher uh, marriage satisfaction, for instance. And they're trying to find out what it was. And my wife says she likes this analogy, so I'm going to use it. I, I would call it the Play-Doh effect. That's definitely not what they called it, but that's what I would call it. And what, what they were finding and su suggested is that, you know, the longer you wait, uh, the more you start to build your own life. You start to set your own habits. Uh, you start to have your kind of own path and, and, and what your preferences are. And it's a little harder to kind of mesh that together. Like Play-Doh, when you leave it out and it starts to dry and get crusty. It's not a, it's kind of a gross analogy, but you know, when Play-Doh, when it's fresh out of the can, 
You can just jam it together and take red and blue and you work and try to make it purple. But it takes a lot of work, you know. It's like I'm making that purple Play-Doh and you see a tiny streak of red left and you keep working it. Versus when it's dry, the kids have left it out. You're like, oi, what do I... Uh, do I use the microwave and spritz it with water? How do you resurrect Play-Doh, you know? You try to jam it together and it just drops as crumbs. That's why I've, I've seen older people in the church in their 60s and 70s think they don't need counseling before marriage because, oh, we're older. We, we know what we're doing. And that's true. They do bring more wisdom. They bring more experience. And for younger couples, that's a challenge. But they're also crustier Play-Doh. I'll just say it's a little harder to become one flesh, you know, when you've already been, in a sense, distinct flesh for so long. And that's actually, he didn't use Play-Doh, but what Brad Wilcox and his colleagues suggested is they do see these people getting into their late 20s and their 30s, and they're already establishing certain habits. They've got patterns. They're sort of used to serving themselves. Whereas the younger couples, they don't always have the wisdom those extra five years and such would provide, but they do have the flexibility. And they end up going through maybe a few more harder times, but they do it together and grow through that. And they felt that that was possibly one of the effects that they were seeing. But the thing is, what I see from that is being more flexible, it's easier to become a companion designed for that person. Because one flesh doesn't happen overnight. (laughs) People often just equate being one flesh with sex. And so you think, oh, the honeymoon, you become one flesh. But, you know, if you're married, you kind of recognize that is a lifelong process. And I I, another reason I like to equate it to Plato, because sometimes that's what it's feeling like. Like, oh, I guess we're going through a one flesh moment now because this is uncomfortable. You know, this bill or, you know, this mortgage payment I can't afford or I can't believe that kid said that or something like that. And it's 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 uncomfortable. But it's those things sort of molding you and shaping you and creating this 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 companion. You know, if you think of a companion. It's someone who shares a journey with you. Right. And part of the blessing of marriage is it provides a companion that goes with you through the rest of your life. And it's not just that they're committed. It's not just that they're there. But the longer you go on that trip, the more you can both look back on that journey and realize you both share a perspective on that journey nobody else has. No one else you will ever meet will be able to reflect on the journey you two have had and think about it the same way. And that is an astonishing blessing. It is a gift to be able to have. You know, you've surely got friends in your life where you say, hey, remember the place where we saw the thing and heard that thing? Let's go to that place. Oh, yeah. And they all know. Yeah, okay. You know, that's that's great. And it feels good. And that's what marriage makes of you. When you allow God to do that, it crafts these two people over a lifetime. That's part of what makes it so difficult to lose a spouse. And, And so many of you know that. Because you recognize, and this is the way God designed it, it enhances our desire to be on the other side. But you lose that spouse and you recognize you really have lost something irreplaceable. There can't be someone like that because the person that was lost is someone who was shaped to correspond to you while you were shaped to correspond to him or her over the course of years and decades. And it is truly, truly a gift. It is worth pursuing. It's worth 
growing. It's worth striving to overcome so that you can become someone whom you feel might be a worthy companion to someone else. All right, let's look at a fifth blessing of marriage. And that is vulnerability. Vulnerability. It is an astonishing blessing to be able to be truly vulnerable with someone. It takes a lot of trust. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. You know, real relationships require a, a willingness to be vulnerable. Uh, I, one of the things I, I, uh, I've appreciated, uh, Mr. Weston said early on uh, when Dr. Meredith brought him here, he just encouraged all of us to, have, to not have thick skin. You know, if we, no, sorry, to have thick skin. We can't have thin skin, rather. We can't have thin skin. Uh, we can't afford to be easily offended, or we're not going to be able to share the ideas we need to. And it was kind of an encouraging uh, to, to take some risks and be vulnerable, you know, and say some things you might not say otherwise. And then to be open to getting feedback that maybe might hurt your feelings otherwise, but the work's not going to go on unless you're willing to have your feelings hurt. But marriage creates an environment of vulnerability unlike any other. In fact, I'll point to this. It's the last verse in Genesis chapter 2. The way God wraps it up, Genesis 2.25. It says, and they were both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Well, there's a reason that's a statement, because shame eventually does enter. And what do they do? They start covering up. Because they feel exposed. They feel vulnerable. And really, who, who are the, after, once you're a grown adult, who are you naked in front of? Your spouse and your doctor. Uh, that's generally, you know, the list, right? Uh, and then eventually, you know, sometimes other people in your life, you know, caretakers and the rest, but it's, it's a pretty small group. And I remember it was one of my first Sabbaths. It wasn't my very first Sabbath, but it was one of my, it was one of my first Sabbaths way back when I was, uh, uh, I might have been 19 by then, but I was 18 or 19. And the minister was talking about marriage and he was talking about vulnerability. And he said, probably the thing that just freaked me out the most, that made me the most scared, perhaps about that level of vulnerability. And you think it might be this is, you know, when you're married, you know, that person's going to see you naked because who, how many of us have nightmares? Don't raise your hand, but have nightmares, right? About being naked in public. Nobody wants that. But that's not what he said. I don't know if God inspired him to, to just mess with me more, but he said, you know, when you get married, that other person's going to see you in your underwear. And that just seemed worse. I don't know why. That just seemed more vulnerable, you know, uh, I'm not going to elaborate, but regardless, I, I felt vulnerable and I said, Oh, I gotta be honest. Suddenly, I don't know. I don't know about this marriage thing. I don't think I want anybody to see me, see me in my, in my underwear. Um, but yet, vulnerability, the ability to be completely, uh, vulnerable emotionally to someone. You know, your marriage is not gonna survive unless you're willing to fess up to terrible mistakes. Because you're going to make terrible mistakes. It's a given. You know, uh, if you haven't made any terrible mistakes yet, you are lying. Because I know you made mistakes, right? Uh, and they, they change. Sometimes, I remember Mr. Jonathan McNair at camp talking about the, the, the battle of the folded towel. That's still one of my favorite stories you know, early in their marriage. Uh, and that's your terrible mistake. But honestly, we are still human. That we marry and don't become perfect immediately. 
right? Christ perfects us over time. We'll be perfect when we see him. So we marry these two imperfect people. And if you can't open up and talk about mistakes or admit those mistakes, you're not going to be able to have a marriage. It's hard and you grow in that capacity over time. But as you do, it is an amazing burden off of your back. You know, honestly, all of us with various people, we have certain, my wife and I have come up with a language for it, where we're sort of on at certain levels. Uh, when I, if I'm conducting a funeral or conducting a marriage, all the more you've got to honor that moment and you're very on and afterwards you're, you're talking. You know, in services even, we, we want to honor the day. We want to honor our, our brother and sister. We pop a breath mint if we need to. Uh, and, and we, 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 you're not being, it's not the same as being, what's the word? You're not being hypocritical. You're just being that version of yourself that is appropriate for the circumstance that shows that kind of uh, honor and respect. Uh, to the person you're with. But then you have those people in your life that you know you're free to let your hair down a bit, as the saying goes. And they know you and you know them to the point that some of the things that might embarrass you in front of other people, you're just freer in front of them. Uh, the conversations you might have. There's a, where you know each other enough that you can say something and they're not going to misinterpret it. And that's an amazing relationship to be able to have and in our marriage we have that person who their job is to get to know us that well they like you are spending the rest of their life trying to earn a phd in the other person and when someone knows you that well you're not as worried about putting always the best foot forward because they've seen the ugly foot they know right and they're still there the ability to have a relationship like that with someone is astonishing. And it truly is one of the blessings of marriage. The ability to be vulnerable. All right, a sixth blessing of marriage I wanted to discuss today is the opportunity to have children. And of course, not all families do. In fact, some of you, even when you got married, uh, your marriage was cut short in the first few years. And I, I know talking about some of these blessings can be painful because you didn't get to have a very long journey with that person. And, and definitely same here. You know, children weren't in your future. God had something else planned for you. And God does know what he's doing. But that said, children are a blessing. It is still something wonderful. And marriage is what makes that possible in terms of the way God has it planned. In Malachi chapter 2, we see that statement. And I want to mention this in a certain context because I know the end times are coming and I know things like they're getting difficult and you might be tempted. I see people in the world, millennials in particular, I read an article literally yesterday on my Apple news feed talking about millennials saying, oh, I just don't think I can have children, you know, financial instability and the rest. All I can say is God hasn't moved the church to say, hold off on having children. God hasn't opened up a window and said, Mr. Weston, please tell the congregation to no longer spawn children. Uh, and some of you are taking that very seriously. We have got a lot of kids showing up, you know, out of the woodwork. And it is a blessing. Please don't hold off on that. Again, I want to encourage you to do the opposite. 
just think to yourself, you know what? I know the world's getting rough. Therefore, I am all the more committed to having children because I want to have children in this world that can stand up for what's right. And they won't suffer the things that this world does. I want the opportunity to do what God is doing with me. I was born for a time such as this, apparently, and I want to act on that. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15, the same passage, talking about making man and woman one. In Malachi 2.15, it says, But he did, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. He seeks godly offspring. And just so you, you see it in the scriptures, turn to Proverbs chapter 17. There are a lot of verses we could go to talking about how children are, are a blessing. I just want to look at a couple. Proverbs chapter 17. And verse 6. Proverbs 17 and verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. It's a lot of burden trying to make of your life something where you are the the glory of your children. Uh, But I'm getting close to old man stage, I suppose, right? I think I mentioned before, my son Benjamin did tell me once I crossed 50, I was officially old. But it was still cool old. You know, a 50-year-old, yeah, he's old, but you still, you figure he's old enough to be good at what he does. That's, I think it was something like that, which hopefully he hasn't examined too closely. But I admit, you know, when the boys are standing around, like it used to be the four of them before Michael just traitor moved out. Uh, the four of them, you know, in our suits, I feel like the president of the United States surrounded by secret service. You know, I wanted to get them fake earbuds, you know, just to wear around me. And it was, it's, you just imagine like in the, in the Psalms or the, it's, it's like, is your orchard and kind of like an olive tree you did have a role to play but you recognize you couldn't make it rain you didn't design all the mechanisms in the seed uh, to produce that you recognize this is something you and god had an opportunity to work together uh you doing some things much of them wrong him fixing them and and that you had the opportunity to partake in that and it is a blessing. Uh, turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. <laughs> I, in my younger days, I never... I don't think I... Uh, all right. Psalm 127. I'll just read the verse and go from there. Psalm 127 and verse 4. Well, actually start in verse 3. Sorry about that. Uh, Psalm 127 verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the eternal. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. And... You can't say it's literal. I, I don't know if it's the editor in me or what it is, but I, it bothers me to hear the word literally misused for things that aren't 
literally actually true. So I can't say, you know, it's, it's like your children are literally arrows. Oh, really? Or do they have pointy heads? Do you shoot them with a bow? You know, and the rest. So it's not, not literal. And if I say that and it's not literal, please forgive me. We're all imperfect. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's hard for me to communicate how this verse does start to come to life when you happen to have uh, children. And we have quivers of different sizes, right? Our quiver was a four arrow quiver, clearly. And it is something remarkable. Like a, a man with a, a quiver full of arrows, a warrior feels a certain security. And you might think, well, you know, you're the older person, right? You, you, you shouldn't need them for security. Well, I, I have to say, um, taking care of me can be a hassle. It's nice to know my, my wife might have some help, you know, if it comes to that. But not only that, let's, you know, be up front. Again, I'm, I'm 52. I have been, let's say, over the average age for, I'm sorry, over the average weight for my age for some time, um, past the age where my father and my grandfather had heart difficulties. And it's easy to imagine a world in which I'm not there. It can happen any time. And it's not possible for me to truly communicate the sense of security it gives me to know that there will be, God willing, the moment I die, four other men in the world who care about that woman for whom her her welfare is something important in the world. And these verses mean something. It is a blessing. It's a blessing it's hard to appreciate at first, but that's just it. It's hard to appreciate these blessings sometimes in your youth, but they only show up if you invest in them early. It's always about sowing and reaping. You, if you don't sow early, you don't reap later. And so we have to care about them even before we fully understand how much we'll appreciate them. And these days, I'll just... Especially for those of you rearing children in this world, the world is trying to turn them into not a blessing. To every degree they can be a source of blessing, they can be a source of heartache. You know, I understand, and, and we don't officially endorse public school or private school or homeschooling in the church because every parent is responsible before God to pray and to ask God to guide them what to do with their children. What is the best way for me to, to raise my children? What, what are the best tools for me to take advantage of? But with the end times coming, which was part of my motivation for this sermon, we are foolish if we are young and we see children in our future to not think, what are schools going to be like in five years? What are schools going to be like in eight years? What are schools going to be like in 10 years? It would behoove us as young parents and as potential parents to begin thinking now, what would I do to rear and educate my children if the system is increasingly designed to undermine the values God wants me to teach them. We have to think about that. All these blessings, when you think about them, come with responsibilities. And that's a responsibility. It's not a, it's not a time to turn aside, though. It's not a time to fear. But it is a time to go to God and say, God, help me think about what's ahead and what to plan for. The last blessing that I will mention today of marriage, seventh blessing, is design fulfillment. Design fulfillment. And if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. 
And please understand as I say this, as a man and as a woman, I know I've tried to touch on it in a couple of sermons I've given. Uh, I gave uh, one about uh, being a man called Quit Yourself Like Men. Uh, I gave one about women called uh, Desi- Woman by Design. Uh, but not just me. I know Dr. Winnell has also given sermons about that. And he was more consistent in his wording. I think one of his sermons is called uh, the, path, uh, uh, the Path for Christian Manhood and the path for Christian womanhood. It could be pathway instead of path. Google probably knows better. Uh, but Dr. Winnell has touched on these things as well. And I will say, you don't have to be married to be fulfilled as a man or woman. In fact, if you're counting on marriage to make you fulfilled as a man or a woman, you have the potential to crush your mate. If you expect to be satisfied in ways only God can satisfy you, your human spouse cannot bear that burden. But that said, it can be a tool for God to use to help him accomplish his purposes. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, we read it earlier, or we referred to it earlier. We read, and the eternal God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. That comparable means one designed for him. Up to this point, all Adam had seen was giraffes and sloths and chimpanzees and snails, assumably maybe some goldfish and stuff. I don't really know all the details, but God brought all the animals. And Adam would have seen conspicuously none of them were like him. He brings Mr. and Mrs. Chimpanzee. Oh, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sloth. And they're still just him. And it wasn't like God was surprised. I've actually heard it characterized, I think, that what God's saying, what? This really isn't working out. I, you know, I don't know what to do. I do believe God knew what he was doing. And I think he wanted, as God often does, God wanted Adam to figure out that he needed somebody else. That's that's me. Uh, and so he said, I, it's not good that man should be alone. This is not done yet. He goes, I'll make a helper comparable to him. That's what the help meet means. Meet means comparable in that sense. One that is designed like he is, of the same flesh, the same bone, like like two puzzle pieces that belong together. I uh, see in verse uh, 20, Adam had given uh, names to all the animals. And it says in verse 23, that after God brings Eve to Adam... He says, it says in verse 23, and Adam said, now this, this is now bone of my bones, unlike the giraffe. Uh, this is flesh of my flesh, unlike the cheetah. Uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, there's this sense when God says it's not good. There is this sense that there's kind of it's like an incomplete package to a certain extent. And in a marriage, there's an opportunity for each person to participate with God as a tool in his hands to help him fulfill the other person in their designed role. As a man, a man is, we don't have time to go, feel free and look at the sermons we have for this, but a man is designed to be a provider for his family. And I recognize sometimes there's illness and other circumstances and we do what we can. God doesn't abandon us in any of those circumstances. But in most normal circumstances, the man seeks to provide. And as a, a woman, you have the opportunity in marriage to make that easy or hard. And a woman is designed to help uh, keep house and, and to build a world for them and to make sure that world works and to support him in that way. I know it's not kosher in the world to say that these days the world would rather convince you you need to go get a business degree for eight years and become a ceo of some company 
but God says it's, it's good for a woman to know how to be a keeper at home and to devote a certain major portion of her life to, to helping with children and supporting her husband. In fact, there are articles in the New York Times these days where it's, I've, I've read too many of them, where a woman is, is boasting how she finally got it. She finally got it that she had to abandon her children to a great extent to fulfill her larger role in society as a lawyer for something or as this. And her children got it too. They recognize, well, mommy doesn't spend much time with me, but, but she's off defending people that need defending. And I just wept for those families. Not literally wept. I just, I kind of smirked, I guess. But regardless, I recognize they don't understand. They don't understand. You know, and you might think uh, it's sort of like a a child. You know, if you're a if you're a father to a child, you have the opportunity to help that child come to understand God a little better. His heavenly father by being that child's physical father. Well, you know, that child whether he has an abusive, terrible parent or a loving parent who cares for them and guides them and disciplines them properly, Either way, God can work with that child. God can build that relationship. Many of us have overcome the negative circumstance. But what you recognize as a father is for God to build that relationship, which he wants to do with that child, I'm either going to be his hindrance or I'm going to be his aid. And there's a joy in getting to be the aid. It's intimidating because you mess it up sometimes. But this idea that you have the opportunity to help picture his heavenly father to him in some way. And that's what we get to do in marriage. We get to help God bring out the best, the most womanly woman things, you know, in this woman, if we're willing. And she gets to help bring out the manliest man things, you know, uh, in her husband. And that is a great joy. It's a lot of work. But it is a joy. In marriage, we get the privilege of helping God in that way. You know, I'll conclude with just one more scripture. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're reminded why marriage matters so much to God. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll try to give Mr. Wakefield credit when I say this, because first time I read the word was in one of his articles. But... The world accuses us of anthropomorphizing God. Anthropomorphize means human shape, man shape. Like we're projecting attributes on God. God is not actually a father. We're projecting fatherhood on him, they say. When the Bible reveals that's not true, God made a theomorphic universe. He made a universe that is God-shaped in a sense. Not the literal shape, but the universe is designed to reflect him. It's not that fatherhood is a human institution we project onto God, rather, God is a father and he has designed fatherhood and humanity to reflect his true fatherhood. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is theomorphic in its nature. It's meant to reflect divine reality. We see that reality described in Ephesians 5. Paul writes beginning in verse 31. For this reason, Ephesians 5, 31 a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Marriage matters to God. He teaches divine, sacred lessons through the institution. 
And when we get married, when we work with God over the years that follow to develop and cultivate the blessings of marriage, as man and wife, we are offering our lives to Jesus Christ as blank canvases where he gets to work with us and paint on our canvas a beautiful and unique in its own way picture of his own dear and loving relationship with his church. It is a beautiful privilege and it comes with beautiful blessings.